Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Ms. Sandra Lamb. Ms. Lamb is an award-winning author of many books, including Writing Well for Business Success, 3,000 Power Words and Phrases for Effective Performance, How to Write It, A Complete Guide to Everything You'll Ever Write, and Personal Notes How to Write from the Heart for Any Occasion. She is a former columnist for the Denver Post and former Rocky Mountain News, and she has written Relationship, psychology articles for national women's magazines, such as Family Circle and Women's Day. And she's also written healthcare and science articles for publications such as Scientific American, AARP, and many others. And with that, I'd like to welcome Ms. Lam. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. I wanna talk a little bit about transitioning your background and your skill set to something that is in many ways, diametrically opposite, the pandemic. Much of your writing and your experience emphasizes effective, concise writing. And in many ways, effective writing in mostly professional and personal settings, concise to the point of being efficient, if you will. Yet the pandemic introduced a unique element of uncertainty that many can argue made effective writing more difficult. When did you first notice that writers were struggling to accurately depict pandemic stories? Well, I think almost immediately we, we realized that in, with the backdrop of diminishing news um, professionals, the, particularly on local levels, you know, we've seen uh, local newspapers and media sources downscaling laying off people for a period of time prior to the pandemic. But then when the pandemic hit, uh, those factors that became exacerbated by the fact that we had um, with, with fewer personnel in news outlets and, and more cutbacks, there was the um, there were the factors of we you know personally news people were losing their lives. We had I think in the first ten months there were like five hundred um, news people unfortunately left our planet, and wow. then we also saw that uh, firsthand reporting was not possible in the in the environment, the the sources that you know people would normally relate to. So. We lost the structure, you know, so, so often media, particularly news media, local news media, depend on the structure of, of uh, uh, colleagues who, who, you know, work together, who offer information, who edit, who fact check for us. A, a lot of that was gone. And, and then we were thrown into a situation where uh, we had to use electronic uh, sources in order to, we had to transition to electronic sources in order to get news out. So that actually created somewhat of um, a crisis because older people, older journalists, should I say, who were not technologically, you know, up to date with such things as, as the latest, um, Phone reporting, you know, I'll say iPhone, but you know, also also uh, Android 
phone reporting, any those methodologies became much more important. I mean, the whole environment sort of switched. We saw this transition, which we had seen in other in other ways, but this transition from printed news and reliable sources to much more um, online sources, and um, and and journalists had to make that transition too. They had to create online support groups. Uh, like within Facebook, maybe where they could, uh, where and and it became also a source for experts, uh, a, a platform for experts to create their own uh, platform to give intelligent and factual information. Which for a period of time, you know, it it just seemed was not going to be available. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it was. Um, the wild west in medicine we had not experienced anything in this for a hundred years we had not in, experienced anything uh uh this dynamic as the pandemic that you know that beset us uh, certainly and i appreciate the various points that you've articulated so nicely i want to just reiterate that for the audience you talked about the personnel loss the structural right. shifts from more manual to electronic sources the infrastructure by which colleagues communicate and share and both fact check and disseminate information was lost. Uh, for those who may not appreciate just how much of a shift that is, can you perhaps give an example either personally or from someone you know who really struggled when this structural shift took place in a pandemic? Well, uh, certainly, certainly um, particularly older journalists who are not uh, savvy in the in the latest technologies are the people I saw struggling the most. And and also, well, I, I won't go into that. Go ahead with your next if, if you have the, your next question. Sure. So you mentioned uh, a lot about concise writing and effective personalized writing that really hits the intended target uh, for journalists to really meet that metric, they have to have a certain level of confidence or at least uh, subject matter expertise in that topic. But with more unknowns than knowns in the pandemic, uh, do you feel that that method broke down almost where the systemic shift overwhelmed existing journalistic techniques? Is that a fair assessment to make? Well, I, th I think... Um... It's somewhat fair to make that uh, there. What we were faced with in in the onset of the pandemic was a lack of Im imperial facts and reliable data. And when we add to that the misinformation that was coming from the very top of our government, those horrible, horrible non news news conferences that you know, just uh, besieged us day after day and went on with no, no misinformation and, and false information, let's, let's call it what it was, uh, coming from the very top of our government. And the fact that we could visually see uh, our top experts were completely um, intimidated to give any real information. You could tell they were being muzzled. Uh, and and so we weren't getting real information. Uh, it it sort of gave journalists this 
this moment of where do I go for, you know, who do I trust to give me real information? The people I should be able to trust to give me real information, are obviously not, you know, not going to be allowed to do that or, you know, or won't do that. So uh, then we also had at the same time, you know, fewer people were allowed into the, into the news briefings. So we had no, um, face-to-face in-person briefings that were, you know, that were coming from that environment. So um, we had to, uh, there were, obviously that meant a restriction on information, um, uh, a disintegr- and, and there was the denigration of, of journalists that was sort of an onslaught. So we had this, what, what had actually occurred before the pandemic hit was that we saw a growing mistrust in the, in the media. And this was exacerbated obviously by our last president who constantly had the attack on quote false, uh, what did he call it? False information or the- uh, Fake news, the I fake, believe. The fake, the fake yeah. media, no, the fake, fake media. Yeah. And it was like, that, you know, this just kind of put gasoline on that fire. Uh, Fake news, I guess, is, was his big term that he used, mm-hmm. and um, and and this coming from the White House, you know, it just sort of put the general public in a bit of a turmoil. And and I think for a half a step, a, a lot of journalists did not ho- know how to deal with that. And there was in that environment, there was a certain censor censorship of you know a divergent opinions. Uh, you had to be of a certain mindset or obviously it, you know your information was not going to be received and then we had you know we had the growth of of the questioning misinformation medias so it created a very you know uh, a very fraught environment for for journalists it's interesting you mentioned that because it's almost as if you have two sources of chaos and the analogy I like to make uh, is that of a pendulum. With one pendulum, you have precise motion. With two, you have absolute chaos. So right. on one on one end, you have this uncertainty that's so pervasive. And then on the other hand, you have this deliberate misinformation, false information, and essentially the growing censorship. Um, d- journalists seem to thrive or at least produce great work in the face of censorship, but it doesn't seem to apply as much in the face of uncertainty. Uh, would you characterize that as a fair statement? And what is it about the combination of censorship and uncertainty that led to so many writers struggling? Well, I think I think the human, you know, we, we have to kind of uh, bring to this, I believe, the human condition of dealing with uncertainty. It's a, it's it's not only it's not only journalists obviously it's it's the human the human reaction to uncertainty that of course journalists have as well as uh, you know as well as other people um, in order to deal with that I think we have to we have to both the general public and journalists as well um, it's kind of like looking into the abyss. You know, it's like um, we're used to using a certain methodology or ecology to deal with something. Journalists have a sort of disaster communication ecology that they generally use. Uh, And but when you're you know, when no one knows the facts, you have you know, you have this 
chaotic situation of no known facts and then misinformation and an absolute disinformation, you, you have a bouillabaisse of, of how do you, you know, where, where can you get a grip on this? Um, because journalists wanna stump for the truth and they want to stump for critical thinking and to try to, to uh, put those two things together in this, you know, complete chaotic situation, yeah, everyone, everyone struggled a bit. And so they had to reconstruct uh, methods to deal with this. And what was coming out of it was that reliable sources of information, once trusted sources of information, began to use um, existing electronic platforms, like even like TikTok and Facebook, to put together specialized groups uh, to, uh, you know, experts began to do this to give real facts because there was, you know, so much information coming out and so much confusion. And so um, this allowed not only experts, but it also allowed journalists to uh, create groups within, let's use Facebook as an example, to share information, uh, to answer questions, to create a sense of community, which was also needed at that point. Certainly uh, journalists as, as well as the, as the general public needed that. Uh, and so those sources became uh, much more important, which also on, uh, conversely, um, because people began to rely more on electronic sources, there's obviously a certain segment of the population that sort of went to the dark side of that. And, and you know accepted misinformation and discredited real factual information or just refused to you know accept it at all. So we had this you know we had this dichotomy that now exists uh, between those who are choose to be informed and accept the facts and and that minority of people who you know just do not. I want to touch on this a little bit more because I think that it's a very important point you brought up. And I want to ask it in two questions. Um, one is the sense of community for journalists and two is the nascent electronic groups that were created on social media. So let's begin with the first part. Uh, most people who think of journalists think of kind of the sole evangelist who is in the pursuit of truth, who's conducting investigations in the midnight hours, so on and so forth. But that's not exact reality. A journalist thrives in a sense of community. Before the pandemic and even during the pandemic, community was critical. Can you explain to the audience what a community or what an ecosystem means to a journalist? Well, I mean, you know, the typical newsroom is a good example because you have, um, visiting a newsroom, uh, you have these little cubicles or, you know, partial petitions where, where you have each editor, yes, working in their own sphere for sure, but also having access to other journalists where they, they get the advantage of sharing ideas, of getting feedback, of, of having a, a, a critical view, of a questioning view of, did you think of this? You didn't really cover that you know, um, the kind of empirical questions that every, that every journalist needs. And of course, the fact checking. Um, yes, you said this, but there are three other sources that say this, this, and this. And did you, you know, did you check those? And obviously, this is always the role of the journalists and the journalists I know who are really good 
use multiple sources to come up with information, double check and triple check their facts to make sure. So the community of, of journalists um, is, is necessary on several levels, certainly uh, also on the personal level, uh, like everyone else, they suffered from that loss of community and they had to start creating another platform to recreate that and, and therefore started to, to form these collaborations or groups on uh, electronic media platforms. So let's talk about those electronic media platforms, like the Facebook groups and uh, to a lesser extent, TikTok and other social media platforms. Uh, what was good about them? What was limiting about them? I know there's always the technological learning curve for anybody who's not familiar with those interfaces, but aside from those technological limitations, what sort of journalistic limitations did you notice in these Facebook groups or other social media groups? Well, there, there isn't always, there certainly isn't the, the immediate opportunity for um, a question answer kind of, you know, kind of environment uh, and, and not always immediate access to people. The other one that a lot of journalists told me they found particularly helpful was postings on Twitter. And if those were coming from, you know, and th if those were coming from someone they respected as being a real authority and authorities were taking up the job of trying to counter disinformation and, and out and out untruths by posting good information on these platforms. So a lot of, uh, a lot of journalists found that by, by identifying who the real authoritative voices were on these platforms, they were able to set up some kind of communication. This did give, you know, a, a sort of give and take, which, which isn't always helpful under a situation where you're working on a deadline, because you may not, you know, necessarily be able to utilize that to the, to the uh, maximum that it, that you would like to, but uh, it did create an opportunity for dialogue. Did I, I don't know if I answered the question. But. No, you, you certainly did. And I think you bring up quite a few interesting points about Twitter, Facebook, and the perceived value of an expert. Um, these subject matter experts who came out uh, on pandemic policy um, often had very extreme and different views of how did people struggle to then fact check or double check when a post could come in a matter of minutes and a deadline could be looming and your perceived expert that you're referencing is uh, someone who's posting things that may be extreme, but perhaps something that has a kernel of truth. How do you then parse through what is the reality and what is essentially a possible source of misinformation, although maybe not at that time, according to that expert, but again, it, it creates a, a different dynamic than what a journalist would be used to outside of that back and forth in the newsroom, because you're now looking at new sources of experts, new sources of banter. Is the process itself a source of error? The process itself a source of error? Um, well, it certainly can be, but you know, the, the Obviously, the journalistic approach to reporting the facts 
is to give this viewpoint and that viewpoint where you're talking about two contradictory uh, viewpoints or or theories or or you know or reported information. So the responsibility of the journalist in that situation is Dr. X says, quote, this, 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 and Dr. Y says, quote, this, this, this. So you present uh, both sides of whatever, you know, of, of a particular fact, fact or opinion to your audience. And, and that is the responsibility of the journalist. If you, if the journalist feels that this is entirely, you know, entirely not true, then uh, they obviously will look for, for sources um, to counteract that. I mean, in, in every case, they want to give divergent opinions and viewpoints, but um, getting to the real fact, you know, then then obviously the second layer of that is you dig a bit deeper and try to come up with any kind of imperial, imperial evidence that's out there and data that's out there to substantiate whichever viewpoint you're expressing. I think that's a very important point because the idea of digging deep and trying to find something that substantiates what is the core narrative uh, seem to be uh, a major source of uh, difficulty, particularly early in the pandemic, because as you had mentioned, there was a lack of empirical facts and reliable data early on. Uh, what I feel was a problem with journalists and something that uh, in many ways I personally sympathize with is this tendency to want to write concisely, be efficient in their messaging, yet, address the lingering uncertainty in the room. Uh, is it possible to reconcile the two in effective writing in a journalistic medium? Or is there a, perhaps a different medium by which you want to express the two, concise writing and uncertainty? Well, I think concise writing is, is always the best formula for dealing with uncertainty. If you're giving people uh, the facts, obviously to your to your prior statement, uh, finding the facts may be you know maybe it's a big the big problem. But if you're giving people the facts, that is going to that is going to help dissolve uncertainty. It's you know I always I think precise writing that you know, that is clear and to the point is going to be the most effective method of trying to deal with uncertainty. Um, I, th I think admitting the uncertainty is certainly a, a valid point. Uh, if you, you know, it, uh, and, and even prefacing what you say as fact is in, in these uncertain times, we, Dr. X says this and Dr. Y says this. And then if you have as a deeper dig, um, the reported number of, you know, whatever you're dealing with, the, the reported number of pandemic cases in X or the reported number of pandemic cases among uh, this group of people or that group of people in New York in the last month was X, Y, and Z. Though that, those kind of facts, which of course we learned later weren't always reported correctly, but as, as correct as we can get the information, obviously, then I think we are, we are fulfilling our ethical responsibility to our 
listener, excuse me, listeners or readers are whatever, you know, whatever venue we are using to, to communicate this information. I like the way you phrase that our ethical obligation to the readers. Uh, do you think in this day and age, particularly with social media, taking an outsized role in journalism, that many writers write to the readers or write for, I guess, a certain level of activity, be it the forms of likes and retweets. And do you feel that there's a balance between writing to an audience, writing for a reaction while maintaining that ethical standard required? You know, when, when writing uh, by electronic means began, I was on the board of directors of the American Society of Journalists and Authors. And we started, we started this, what we called an, a platform, a forum where people could write in. And it became this uh, venue for people to express, uh, anxiety is one word, but anger and, and negative opinions and this kind of thing, and what we would call flame wars. You know, and once one started, then there was this back and forth. So I say that to say there is, there is, there are platforms um, on which people still use uh, use it as a mechanism to vent or to express their you know negative uh, opinions or to or to just express their opinions. But then there are other platforms uh, where real news is dynamically reported. So I think the, the, the you know, there is a juxtaposition between, uh, uh, with these two. So I think journalists who are writing for the, for the, for the latter um, do try to use the, the, you know, the best journalistic standards to report and post what the best information is. And I'm not, I'm not sure I com in completely answered your question, but. No, I think you mentioned a few critical points that really encompass the nature of the question I was seeking, uh, the nature of the answer rather, and that is anxiety and anger, these flame wars, as you had mentioned, really coming out of visceral emotions from journalists expressing frustration. Uh, I want to now maybe look at this more from a solution-oriented perspective. What can journalists do, and in many ways, what can the readers do to help journalists uh, encourage more ethical behavior or encourage traditional journalistic standards that has kind of long defined uh, American journalism that I guess some would say maybe um, is uh, not as concretely understood in this age of pervasive social media. What, uh, what advice would you give to the, both the upcoming journalists and to the readers who are seeking good journalistic writing? I think the standards for good journalism remain the same. I think uh, to, re to report the facts uh, as, you know, as they exist to the extent that we know them in the most palatable um, language possible and as succinctly and effectively as possible is, is the best method for 
uh, you know, uh, for honesty with our audience and, and I, uh, ethical standards, I don't think have changed. There are obviously people who have bent the standards or people who, uh, you know, we, we can look at our television and see where misinformation and, and completely false information are promoted as news. And, but that doesn't, that doesn't change uh, though, though people are violating it, that does not change the ethics of journalism. At a certain level, there has to be a reliance on facts, uh, an objective truth, if you will, the uh, empirical facts as you had phrased it before. Um, in a world where uh, it seems the truth is now more subjective than ever, and uh, facts and those who claim to be experts of those facts seem to have wildly differing opinions. Uh, what advice would you give to a journalist who wants to write about, let's say, um, political misinformation in the pandemic when facts seem to be at the whims of the individual? How would they approach what is empirical truth in those types of stories? Well, I guess we have to go to whatever whatever research from reliable sources has been done. And there are, you know, uh, there are some ongoing studies from around the planet uh, of responsible people who have looked at uh, certainly the dynamics of the pandemic and and what journalists uh, how journalists have grappled with this whole problem of getting real facts. You know, initially we had pr a, a problem identifying who the experts were, who was going to tell us the truth. And it seemed like only one or two people uh, had any handle on, and, and they admitted in many cases that the facts were not known yet, that we had an evolving kind of situation where uh, facts were very scarce or non-existent. And we had to experience um, more and more of the crisis before we could come up with any kind of real data that gave us any track to run on. Because we, you know, we were just, I mean, it was just, you know, the, as the old expression that was the wild west out there. Yeah. We had this we had this besieging of, of this pandemic. People were dying. We, now, what do we face almost approaching a million deaths in our yeah. own country? Uh, so, you know, that kind of, that kind of emergency and, and the unreliability of the information we were getting, uh, you know, put the general public into a huge, chaotic quandary as to where can I get real information? So uh, to answer your question, journalists still have the same responsibility. Uh, and where the facts are not known, we basically have to say that. You know, we have to say, um, this is a theory, and this is a theory, and this, we know this. Uh, we know so many people have died. We know that uh, socioeconomic conditions uh, are at the root of many, uh, many uh, putting people at, at a much higher risk of, of succumbing to this uh, disease than, than people of uh, uh, different ethnicity and, and probably higher, uh, a, a different zip code and higher education. Um, I, my own experience in the in the pandemic was initially, I in March of 2020, I had gone to the West Coast to visit family members and they went on a trip. I stayed at their residence and then 
uh, on returning to Denver, uh, I got a call saying that one of them had come down with COVID oh. or they thought they had, but we had to wait 19 days to get uh, the results of the COVID test. And obviously this is, you know, high anxiety. And I felt that, so I immediately went into um, cave mode as it will, as you will, you know, mm -hmm. into no, no communication with anyone because I was afraid, well, maybe, you know, maybe I will come down with it. I certainly did not want to spread it to someone else, but, um, but I experienced that anxiety, that anxiety on a personal level that of, of what, still exists to some extent. I think people unfortunately now have have uh, pandemic fatigue and they are, you know, they're saying, okay, enough of this. I want to, I, I now am going to break out of this and I am not going to read any more news. You know, uh, I think that has been the impact of our whole situation is um, we got disinformation, we got no information, you know, there were no facts initially, there was disinformation, there was no leadership from the top. And so it was, it created this multifaceted crisis where um, no one knew what to do. And, and there was, there certainly was a certain level of panic, yeah. but to, but to that in journalists, um, and of course, journalists each struggled with their own set of these individual, uh, uh, you know, factors as well. So I think uh, what people were doing is, and what journalists were doing was focusing on the immediate problem, and that becomes very unproductive in uncertainty. Uh, it's it's much, you know, we have to come to a state where we calm ourselves, and we can and we can have greater optimism. And then we can um, think more productively. And I think this is, you know, this is what every journalist has to do in their own, in their, in their own um, operation is come to a more positive attitude, be able to think critically and look at the probabilities of a certain situation. This allows them to more, more accurately find the facts and report the facts as they exist. I think that's well stated because many people forget that journalists are people who are also experiencing what they're going through as they're writing it. And that often gets lost when people are uh, looking at the articles that they may or may not agree with and uh, taking that snapshot in time as uh, everything that is to know about that pandemic from the perspective of the writer. So I think it's very important, as you had mentioned, to look at the evolving situation of the pandemic, but we both in the public, uh, obviously at the highest levels of politics, um, we seem to have this uh, um, inability to accept uncertainty, this inability to kind of accept what we don't know. And perhaps as you had mentioned, that's a certain human condition. Uh, do you think that that also impacted some of the initial writings that came out in March, April, or May of 2020? Definitely. Uh, uncertainty, yes, uncertainty affects everyone. It certainly affected the uh, ability to report. And, um, and, the, and again, I think we have to say 
the absence of real information was a problem, was the biggest problem. And so if you don't have information, how can you possibly report it? I think what we got initially was, uh, and, and they're very valid, was stories about individuals who suffered in the pandemic and exactly what there's what happened to them that uh, and and i'm not denigrating that in the least because that was valuable information but it was it did not give us insight into it did not always give us let me say or it didn't usually give us insight into what um what the big picture was because yeah. the, the big picture just was not available. And, it, and I come back to that fact of focusing on the immediate problem. I mean, it was difficult. We were focused on the immediate problem because we could not see beyond that. Uh, we did not have, you know, we just did not have information. And even the experts were saying, we don't know what to expect. You know, um, uh, this, this might happen or that might happen, but we don't know what to expect. We didn't you know, we didn't have a vaccine. Um, we were even initially given misinformation about uh, such such things as wearing masks. Remember that? Yeah. Initially, the information came out. Uh, oh no, you don't need to wear masks. These masks. Uh, only people who need to wear masks are are um, care uh, healthcare people who are on the front lines or you know uh, first responders, and. I knew that wasn't true because my husband had had cancer, had cancer, and had to wear a mask to protect himself again because his of a reduced uh, immunity. He had to protect himself against uh, getting something from someone else because of reduced immunity. So I knew that wasn't true. So immediately, and then of course that was corrected. But those first mix, missteps were, you know, were not. Were, were terrible because uh, it just added to everyone's uh, anxiety and, and to uh, the, the mistrust of, of expert information. And then we had the president who was, you know, not letting the CDC give us real information or the Surgeon General. You, we could see that they were muzzled. So it was like, um, you know, I mean, it really was, you, you, uh, it was understandable that the general public had high anxiety. Yeah, I think a lot of that anxiety came from what you articulated with your own personal experience, what they were hearing, what the policy guidelines were being pronounced did not reflect their personal experience. And I think that created a kind of um, mental incongruence, uh, some sort of kind of uh, uh, state of unknown or distrust that I think manifested into anxiety as well. Uh, going forward, and you know, God forbid something like this ever happens again, but going forward, are there certain lessons the journalism world has taken from this whole pandemic that you think would make for better writers, better journalists, and in many ways, a, a better understanding of evolving uncertainty? I think having gone through this experience, um, journalists have realized that they need to employ better, better um, methods of coming up with their information. And, and in addition to that, uh, they, have, they have realized that they that 
the support groups they have been able to create uh, on on social media platforms will help them uh, that are now in place and will help them going forward uh, to to have this kind of structure that they once had in you know local newsrooms, for example. Um, uh, methods of uh, of questioning. You know, I, every journalist comes to a particular, let's say, a, a project or a, a situation wanting to report the news, but they also have their own personal bias. And in, and and for me to be able to express to another journalist, uh, this is my take on this. What do you you know What do you think? And that is invaluable. Given you know, given those kind of platforms where you can have this kind of exchange, this questioning of your own, you know, your own implicit biases or your or your own opinions about something is extremely important. And then all the other things that I have added, the, the you know, the fact checking um, resources, the um, uh, even editing, you know that. Have I said this concisely enough? Is this confusing? Have I, you know, and and in that regard, I um, I always instruct people to use um, the methodology of once you write something and you think you have it as clear and and accessible to people as possible, you've read it to yourself, so you you've heard it, so you you know now uh, have the message as you have written it uh, to leave it for just a, a short period of time. So you can, you yourself can become more objective about it. So you can, um, you know, I, I love to leave things like a day or two, even if I'm doing a query or something to an editor and then come back and read it again and say, yeah, often you find that, um, wow, I could have said this, I can strike three words here, or I, I can say this more succinctly, I can say this more effectively substituting you know this a word for this phrase or something like that so having these things in place is very very helpful to journalists for the journalists uh, looking for these types of resources where would you point them are there certain facebook groups or certain organizations obviously the association of healthcare journalists is one uh, what other resources would you recommend for journalists to reach out to well, I think um, I think each journalist for their particular specialty should should comb through Twitter and find uh, experts who uh, work in that particular area. And and uh, I don't think they're that difficult to identify uh, and and, you know, then follow them. And, and that will be a good a good source of information within Facebook, depending again on their specialty, there are specialty groups and I, I can't uh, give you particular names of them because a lot of them are, you know, are in essence membership kind of closed groups. If you specialize in this certain area, you can, you know, you can find this and certainly their associations, as you mentioned, the association of, of, uh, Health uh, healthcare and science journalists is is one, um, and I, I think most journalists have their own particular um, associations that they can inquire of to find where they can connect online for their best resources, and they can create their own groups. Um, you know, um, reaching out to other people in their specialty. Uh, within Facebook, within Facebook, they could create their own their own group, and even on you know on that level, it it will be extremely helpful. 
Thank you so much for that, Mrs. Lamb. Um, before uh, we conclude, uh, can you provide for the listening audience um, ways in which they can get a hold of you or ways in which they can uh, obtain some of your writings? I know that we mentioned uh, some of the books that you've written early in the podcast, and I will have a link for them uh, below, but I also want uh, the audience to know how they can get a hold of you through social media or other platforms should they be interested in seeking your advice. Yeah, perhaps the best way is on Twitter at Sandra Lamb. Um, I think that that is probably a good resource. And of course, I have a website, sandralamb.com. Um, those two sources, I'm, I'm redoing my website, but I think it will always be up. Uh, so they can tune into that on a repeated basis, because a new one will be appearing very soon. Um, and of course, always Google. You know that that is a good a good way to find um, access to writings, and my books, of course, are on Amazon. So um, those those are accessible there. Well, thank you so much, Miss Lamb. I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate your advice on how journalists have navigated and can improve upon the things they experienced in the pandemic. Thank you.